Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Awaken 2008 podcast. My name is Daniel Decker. Let me encourage you, if you haven't had the opportunity yet, to jump on Awaken 2008. That's Awaken2008.com to take a look at all the lineup of speakers, the conference experience that's going to happen with the Awaken Conference April 1st through the 3rd out in Pasadena, California. It's a great opportunity to network with others that are going to be out there and just experience a great conference. And hey, it's in California. What can get better than that? So uh, today in this interview, we're going to be joined by Lee Strobel. Lee, as you may know, is the best-selling author of a number of books. He's a sought-after speaker. His latest book is The Case for the Real Jesus. And in today's interview, he's going to talk about the significance of having a biblical worldview and why doing so is so important so that when someone questions your faith and maybe why you believe what you believe, that you're able to respond with a compelling answer. And he's also going to talk about one of the common myths that he's learned while he travels the country that says that the next generation is not really as interested in doctrine or apologetics. He's finding that actually to be untrue, that there's a great deal of interest in doctrine and apologetics in the new generation because many times they haven't been taught that. So take a listen. We hope you enjoy it and hope to see you at Awaken April 1st through the 3rd. Well, i got with me today Lee Strobel. Lee is a former spiritual skeptic. He's the best-selling author of The Case for Christ, The Case for Faith, Surviving a Spiritual Mismatch in Marriage, Inside the Mind of Unchurched Harry and Mary, and his latest book, The Case for the Real Jesus. Lee has served as a teaching pastor at two of the country's largest and most influential churches, Willow Creek and Saddleback, and we're just excited to have Lee with us today. Lee, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, always great to be with you, Bill. Hey, so tell us, uh, for those people that may have not uh, caught up with you recently, what are you working on or most recently worked on? Oh, man, lots of cool stuff. I just finished a book tour. I traveled about uh, 35,000 miles around the country uh, talking at uh, churches and other locations about my new book, The Case for the Real Jesus, uh, which is really exciting. We've had nearly 1,000 people uh, come to Christ uh, during those um, events, so that is very satisfying. And uh, I'm just now um, working on some curricula. Um, we've developed documentary films out of my books, The Case for Christ, uh, The Case for Creator, and The Case for Faith. And uh, we're turning those also into curricula that will be published by Zondervan next fall, which will have scenes from those documentaries as well as new material and then uh, participants' guides where people can go through a six-week experience to deal with a lot of the evidence that uh, those uh, documentaries deal with. Now, in the case for the real Jesus, how does that differ for the case for Christ? Well, the case for Christ came out a decade ago, and it looked at, you know, the affirmative case for Jesus being the unique Son of God. But as you know, Bill, since then there's been a uh, proliferation of attacks by an increasingly militant atheist community against um, these claims. And there have been all sorts of controversies raised on the Internet, in college classrooms, um, in best-selling books, TV documentaries, and so forth, that challenge the, some of the fundamentals, many of the fundamentals of the Christian faith. And so the case for the real Jesus takes a look at these controversies, these allegations against the uh, traditional beliefs of Christians. And uh, I traveled 24,000 miles around the country to interview scholars and skeptic and uh, experts to, uh, you know, pepper them with these tough objections that have been raised and uh, force them to give me answers that uh, make sense and that we all can understand. So it's really dealing with a lot of these current objections that you read about in best-selling books by um, Sam Harris or uh, Daniel Dennett or um, Sam Harris or uh, Richard Dawkins, some of these atheists. There's a lot of stuff you see on the Internet that, that just so, sounds so authoritative, 
until you check it out and you find out it just evaporates when you do. You know, George Barna says, a recent report I uh, read, that only 9% of Christians have a biblical worldview. Do, do you think that even some of the leaders today, they just, they're not prepared because it's, it's not that they, don't, they intentionally don't have a biblical worldview, but they just don't have the information, um, you know, they're not as well versed in that information, plus they're being bombarded just by all the secularism out there, and so they aren't prepared. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, I really do. I, I think churches have, frankly, fallen down on the job a bit in the last uh, 20 years and really failed to educate people not just on what we believe as Christians, but why we believe it. Uh, and, and then when we don't really understand the reasoning and the evidence behind the beliefs that we have, when we get challenged by our friends and neighbors who you know, read these best-selling books attacking Christianity and so forth, uh, it shakes their faith, and they're not sure how to answer. They can't help their friend, and they themselves often find their own faith um, at risk. In fact, you know, I've, I've gotten emails from um, lots of people, especially young people, who tell me that their faith is devastated by some of these books that atheists have written. So I, I think it is a problem, especially when you know we think in Scripture, in 1 Peter 3.15, uh, says that every Christian is to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. So we really are called, uh, all of us, to be able to help people who have spiritual questions and have doubts about the Christian faith. We're, we're called to give reasons about not just what we believe, but why it is that it makes sense that we believe it. And do, do you, would you know why that we've not spent as much time as Christians um, being as versed and educated in those core beliefs that, that we should have been in? You know, like in years past, you know, the, that generation, you know, the previous generation was much more concerned in, in, in understanding the doctrines and yeah. that information. Why is the case now? Well, I not? think... Um, you know, the belief was, right, we're in a postmodern world. Uh, people don't care as much about uh, these sorts of issues. They don't care about things like doctrine. They don't care about things like apologetics and evidence for the faith. And it, it almost became a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, people began to uh, think that, and consequently churches, I think many of them, just kind of fail to educate people adequately um, and help them understand uh, doctrine and and why it is we believe what we believe. I think it's uh, you know I think that's a false um, conclusion that people drew. Um, I remember talking several years ago to a guy who has a postmodern church reaching a lot of young people, and he said to me he, he said to me something I'll never forget. He said, you know, Lee, there are two things that my people cannot get enough of. I said, what's that? He said, number one, doctrine, and number two, apologetics. And I said, wow, that really runs against the grain of, of what people have said. Why do you think that is? He says, I think it's because they grew up in churches where they've never heard this stuff. This is new information. This is, this is um, stuff that they've wondered about, but nobody's ever taught them before. So they're fascinated by it. In fact, I remember speaking at a postmodern church, um, and uh, I gave a talk basically on the evidence uh, for the Christian faith that convinced me when I was an atheist that uh, Jesus is who he claimed to be. And uh, the response was very interesting, because I gave that same talk at a church that was reaching baby boomers. And after I gave the talk to the baby boomers, I had a guy come down to me and say, hey, that stuff was fascinating. Uh, can you recommend a book I could read to help me further explore it? But when I spoke at the postmodern church, they had the biggest response they'd ever had to a message before. But what was interesting is a young man came up to me later. He said, wow, that stuff's really interesting. And he said, is there a group I could join to talk about it? Huh. 
I thought, isn't that interesting wow. that, you know, the, in, these young people, uh, you know, they really want to dialogue. They really want conversation. They really want to be able to offer their opinions and, and, and hear others and, and to investigate in community. And so I think that reflects a real opportunity for the church today where we can get young people and all people into groups in which they can investigate these things, believers and Christians. Now, um, I know you're going to be speaking at a conference coming up here shortly that Ur McManus and the Mosaic Church are leading in Pasadena called Awaken. And one of the things on these podcasts we're asking uh, the different presenters and speakers who will be there is, you know, some of the things that they're learning these days or have learned through failure. I mean, one of the things we want, and again, we've got a lot of great uh, leaders who will be there. You'll be there. Bill Hybels will be there. Henry Cloud, Wayne Cadero. But one of the things we're going to be asking each of the presenters is to share a little bit about some of their past mistakes, particularly in the church world, since you've been at two of the most prominent churches in uh, North America. Can you tell us, particularly some of the the church planners that will be there and some of the younger leaders, some things that, one or two things that you've learned over the years working the church through mistakes that you could kind of pass on to them, kind of how your failure helped you grow as a uh, Christian? Uh, sure. Um, none of us like to talk about our failures, but I'll, I'll mention a, a couple. Um, you know, one of, one of the biggest failures that I had uh, in ministry that really led to the biggest, one of the biggest revelations in my life was when I was on the staff at Willow Creek Church. And um, I, I proposed the idea and was given the assignment of starting a magazine. And so I launched a magazine that was designed to, uh, you know, be a high-quality periodical that would serve the needs of Willow Creek Community Church and so forth. And I uh, hired some staff, and I uh, put this thing together. And uh, in the end, it just collapsed. It just, it just was a big failure. Um, it, it was not the, the quality of the magazine was great. It just didn't didn't meet, match the needs of the church. It didn't. It wasn't accomplishing what we wanted to accomplish, and uh, we ended up folding it. And the biggest lesson I took away from that was a personal one, but I think it's relevant to all church leaders in some way or the other. And that is that, you know, so often in the church world as well as in the secular world, uh, people get promoted into things. It's sort of like the Peter Principle. You get promoted into things uh, for which you may not be particularly gifted. Uh, you know, in the secular world of journalism, where I got my start, you know, if you're a really good reporter, if you're a spectacular, prize-winning, great newspaper reporter, you know what they do to you? They make you an editor. Well, being an editor is a whole different skill set. I mean, then you're supervising other people, you're making decisions about the news content of the paper and, and these sorts of things. You may not be equipped for that. And, you know, as I got into the church, I found that I'm a communicator, I'm an evangelist. Um, I'm an evangelist who communicates through spoken word, through, um, through the written word, and so forth. And, you know, I kind of got promoted into a leadership role. And I remember the day after the collapse of the magazine, I realized, wait a minute, you know what? I'm not a leader. I am not a spiritually gifted leader. It's, and, 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 you know, I can do certain things functions that a leader could do. I can manage things fairly well, but the truth is I'm not particularly uh, accomplished at it. And ultimately, if you, if you give me a task to lead something, after a while, it's just going to fall apart. And, uh, and you know what, though? That was a huge positive. When I discovered that, it was like these chains had fallen off me because I realized, wait a minute, I don't have to be a leader. Yeah. God has given me gifts as an evangelist. I'm going to pursue that. And, and, yeah, I'm not going to rise to the top of an organization of a church and be a senior pastor and all that, but that's not who I am anyway. 
I need to do what God has gifted me and called me to do, which is evangelism. And, boy, I tell you, it was so liberating to be able to go up to Bill Hybels and say, Bill, you know, I'm not a leader. And, you know, at the time I was on the management team of, of Willow Creek Church, which, which then was the most attended church in, in North America. And, um, you know, it was just felt so good to, to, to come to that realization and say, you know what, it's okay. It's okay. I can be me. I can be who God made me to be. And now that I'm a bit older, um, you know, I organize my life around my giftedness. And I probably, uh, Bill, spend 95% of my time doing things within my calling and giftedness. That's an incredibly wonderful and freeing experience. If I had stayed in church leadership, um, I would be a frustrated and ineffective leader. Um, but, you know, I, I, I moved into areas where I could maximize my calling, and um, it's been the biggest joy of my life. And obviously you, you can just see the impact um, that you've done with your books and your speaking and all the communicating you do around uh, the country, around the world. But it also sounds to me, just hearing in your voice, that not only did God use you at your greatest and fullest potential, but that you got, as you mentioned, the joy and the energy because you were in the right place. Is that correct? Exactly, exactly. And, you know, you just raised something I hadn't really thought of that much, which is that had I not um, gotten myself out of that kind of leadership for which I wasn't gifted and, and I wasn't that good at, had I not done that, my books would not have been written. You know, I never would have written all of these. I wouldn't have the time. I would have been too involved with church leadership. And you know what? Other people can do that better. <laughs> I would rather see them do it and flourish and succeed uh, than me try to do it and flounder around and leave undone the things that only I could do. I remember once sitting with a senior pastor at a church, and I'd come to his church to speak, and, and I was talking to him and watching him interact with his staff and everything, and I said, finally, I said, you know, you really love this, being a senior pastor, don't you? He said, yeah, I really do. And I said, you know, I run into so many senior pastors. They're so frustrated and beaten down and depressed, and, and you're flourishing. And, and he said, you know, I, I think it's because this is my calling. This is what God's gifted me to do, and, and I love doing it. And I just wonder how many pastors are pastors because that's kind of the ladder that you climb in the Christian world. And the truth is, they're outside their gift area. They're leaving undone those unique things that only they could do. And they're doing things that other people could do better. And they're finding themselves frustrated in the process. And, you know, the, the conference you'll be attending in April um, that Erwin McManus is, is leading on, I mean, that's the whole purpose. He, he wants people to get outside of the box. In fact, he wants to obliterate the box. He wants people to go back to the possibilities and imagination that God has given them and yeah. step out. Which interesting, it may sound like a risk, just like you took the risk, but ultimately that risk leads you to the greatest joy and your greater fulfillment in what God's called you to do, correct? Yeah, that's exactly right. And it did it, it felt like a huge risk. I mean, I remember when I left the uh, comfort of, of daily church ministry where I was getting a paycheck and, and so forth and went out on my own as a writer and evangelist, um, I, I didn't know if I could make it financially. I didn't know if I'd survive and and um, I didn't know what was on the horizon and how God was going to bless my ministry. Um, it felt like a huge risk, and yet, you know, somebody once said to me, the great, you know, there's no risk ever when you're, you know, throwing yourself into the arms of Christ. And he has given us a ministry. He has given us a calling. That's what we need to pursue. And sometimes, you know, I know the perks and the, and the uh, often the accolades and the, and the achievements and the, and the sense of, 
uh, affirmation uh, can be very great when you're rising to the top of leadership of churches. Um, but you know what? All of us aren't called to do that. And uh, I would rather do what I'm doing and, and play the role I'm playing because it's what God wants me to do uh, than to play a role that, that would just not fit. It, it reminds me of, there, there's a famous rabbinic uh, story uh, about two angels in heaven. And the two angels are waiting for assignments from God. And God has two assignments to give out. One assignment is to sweep the dirtiest, dirtiest, filthiest uh, streets in the most awful, uh, poorest slum on planet Earth. The second assignment is to live in a fabulous palace and to rule over the most opulent community on the planet. And it would be totally irrelevant to those two angels which one got which assignment. They wouldn't care. Right. I'd take either one. Why? Because what's important to them is not necessarily what the assignment is. It's what God wants them to do. And if uh-huh. God wants them to do this, then that's what they want, that's what they want to do. Right. And that's where they'll find fulfillment and joy and peace and so. And, and so, I, you know, I think when we say, you know, God, you know, what is it you want me to do? Um, and it might not sync up neatly in the box of what people think about when we think of church or ministry. It might be, you know, something that's, that's totally out of the blue. But if that is what God wants me to do, that's what I want to do. Um, I want to do it not because necessarily what it is, but that this is the task for which God has designed me and made me and is commissioning me. Uh, there's a freedom in that, and, um, you know, I, I've certainly felt the chains fall off of me as I don't have to pretend to be something I'm not. And then you get, the, and the joy comes along with it when you're right in the place where God wants you to be. Exactly, and, and you know, life becomes so much sweeter um, because you're not fighting upstream against who God made you to be. Well, before we let you go, and I know we'll be seeing you in April, which we're looking forward to, to hearing what you have to say and getting a chance to, you know, see you personally, but we like to ask a couple of personal questions, and some, some of them are off the, the wall, but, you know, I was thinking, listening to your, you and knowing that you're an investigative journalist, so here would be my question. If you could go and investigate any of the authors of the 66 books of the Bible, who would your Old Testament person be that you would sit down and you could ask him any questions you wanted? Who would you do an investigative journalist yeah. approach to? And then who would it be in the New Testament? Well, I'd have to go with David, I think, in the Old Testament. I mean, he's got a lot of dirt in his background. It'd be worse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I could uh, expose some of that, although he readily admitted it. So that kind of right. takes the fun out of it. But, um, you know, David's such a fascinating character. Um, I couldn't resist the opportunity to sit down with him. I, I in the New Testament, one of my favorites is Luke, um, because, you know, he was a first-century investigative reporter. And he went out and he checked out stuff. He investigated everything. He talked to Mary. He talked to the disciples. He, uh, you know, he was a companion of, of Paul. And, and uh, it would be interesting to compare notes of, with this guy who, you know, does, did in the first century what I've done, you know, 20 centuries later, which is to investigate the evidence. And I, you know, yeah, it'd be wonderful to talk to many of the other uh, people uh, in the New Testament, but I'd have a special affinity for Luke uh, because of the commonality of, of our tasks to investigate and, as he said, to, uh, to determine the certainty of what took place. Well, that makes sense. Well, Lee, uh, I just want to thank you for being on this podcast today. Uh, we'll sure. look forward to seeing you in April at Awaken in Pasadena, uh, California. We greatly appreciate your ministry, your books, 
and your heart for God. So thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, my pleasure. Look forward to the conference. Hope people uh, make an effort to be there.